0: ever like read like true crime news and just wonder what uh what don't we know about like someone
1: yes all the time
0: so today uh they announced not in terms of us releasing this but in in, on the day that we're recording this the i-65 killer or the day's end killer has been identified did you read this
1: i don't think i did did you send it to me
0: I don't know that I've had time to. I just got it. It's, it's a pretty small little clip right now. So right now, they are wrapping up. The Indiana State Police say that they are wrapping up the slayings of three women in Indiana and Kentucky in the late 1980s. And that they have determined who the uh, elusive figure known as the I-65 killer is. Uh, he is allegedly responsible for the rapes and murders of Vicki Heath, uh, Margaret, uh, or Peggy Gill, and Jean Gilbert. They linked him through DNA analysis to, the sex, to a sexual assault of a woman in 1990 in Columbus, Indiana. These young women all worked as clerks in motels along the I-65 corridor. They believe that, th- this is the thing that I was going to ask you about, they believe that there's a distinct possibility he could be linked to a number of other unsolved rapes, robberies, and, assault. and Glenn Fiffle from the Indiana State Police said that investigators were continuing to investigate whether he's connected to other violent crimes in the Midwest. Him uh, being identified, according to them, bookends an investigation that spanned 35 years. And the search for the killer began in 1987 when Vicki Heath was found assaulted and shot to death behind a Super 8 motel in Elizabethton, Kentucky. And in 1989, two more women fell victim to the killer. Peggy Gill was a 24-year-old overnight auditor at a day's in Merrillville. She was sexually assaulted and killed in the early morning hours of March the 3rd. And there was an eerily similar attack on Jean Gilbert, who was a part-time auditor for the Remington Motel. She was also assaulted Uh, And a motorist saw her body on the side of the road in White County. And police said that both women were shot with the same 22 caliber handgun. Kentucky State Police in 2010 said DNA found at Heath's killing linked to the deaths of Gil and Gilbert. And the DNA also linked the same attacker behind a 1990 sexual assault of a clerk at a Days Inn in Columbus, Indiana. In that case, the clerk got away. So this guy is a guy named Harry Edward Greenwell and he has a he has a lengthy criminal record on his own even though you know he wasn't linked to all of this they used a DNA match to a close family member returning a 99.99% probability and police are crediting the DNA analysis for this major breakthrough which is just part of that avalanche that you talk about uh, the families uh, spoke, some of the families of the of the victims spoke. Uh, there's a press release coming, and uh, but by the time we get this, I'll I'll have audio of uh, uh, what's going to be a statement later today. But he died in 2013 at 60 years of age. And my thing about those guys is, you know, when it's a predator, like this guy counts as a predator. If they've linked him to four scenes with three dead victims. He counts as one of those sexual predators. What the hell else was he doing? Telling me he just, you know, did this in 87 and 89 and then one rape in 1990 and that was it. But he didn't die till 2013. I don't believe that for a second.
1: It seems really unlikely. Um, I guess depending on what his motivation was to begin with, if it was uh, situational and he got himself out of whatever the situational problem was that was causing him to be, you know, a, a sadist predator. <laughs> It, I think that it could be possible. I don't think that. I don't necessarily. I. I mean, it is very similar. Okay, but I'm. I'm not sure that. Actually, it probably. I. He probably did do more, <laughs> and I think they'll find it over time because all of his crimes, if DNA is collected, they will be able to cross reference it.
0: Yeah, I think they'll. I think his rate kit, Rape kits get processed and they know now they know to enter his uh, DNA or whatever DNA that, that gets more complicated because he's dead. Like, how do you get his DNA in the system if you're operating off genetic yeah. DNA? They have, have you, it
1: matched somehow. So, well, f- the
0: familial DNA matched in CODIS to 99.99%, but like they were connecting the crimes previously through the DNA matching between the crime scenes, and before that, they had matched. Ballistically, that the bullets were fired from the same gun that, you know, that were being used in these crimes.
1: So So, they matched the bullets and then they connected the DNA. Right. And then now where 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 was he at? Where who was investigating this?
0: So this was Kentucky State Police, I believe, were the ballistic match. And then I think that's correct. Kentucky and Indiana were part of this.
1: Do you have any idea, did they have to get a court order to do a familial code of it?
0: You know, so this is sort of breaking news. I don't know as much about it as I could.
1: I'm just curious if it mentioned it, because I know in California, they it's like sort of a lengthy process to, because essentially what that means is you're not just looking for people who have had their dna lawfully put into codis right but you're opening it up to where you can identify uh, the perpetrator of a crime if they're even related to somebody in codis
0: yeah i so when i was reading about this this is one of those cases that we had bandied about like doing some kind of sort of deeper dive into uh when we started looking at this and i don't think i talked to you much about it i just mentioned maybe like the the bare bones of it. I had found that there were like five or six cases that were linked. So we had the 87 death of Vicki Heath. We had um, uh, Peggy Gill and Jean Gilbert in 1989. There was a 1990 DNA link, but she was stabbed and that produced the composite drawing where they said the man had a beard and a lazy right eye. And so the DNA evidence from that crime, which was at a Columbus, Columbus, Indiana days in, linked back to the Maryville, Indiana days in and the Elizabethtown, Kentucky Super 8 Motel and the Remington, Indiana days Inn. So all of those linked together in 1990. But I do know that in 1991, there was another case out of Rochester, Minnesota that was a surviving victim who also described the suspect, and also produced a composite that was similar to the 1990 case. And in 2013, they linked that case to DNA analysis. Here's my point, and here's how it like ties back to what you just said. I'm pretty sure once you get that far along and you've established that many crimes are connected by DNA, because some of these links were handguns. And and that, like the, the cases in 1989 were the same 22 caliber handgun and like the same set of circumstances. And they were yeah. like a robbery at a motel and the clerk was assaulted and taken away and killed.
1: Right. Um, so this to me is different, but I could be looking at, I, I'm not sure that what do you think about using uh CODIS like that? If, you're if saying- you've already,
0: I'm saying if you like, so I think it falls in line that more than likely along the way here. There's a significant amount of some, of paperwork that probably looks like kind of like John Doe warrants,
1: right? Which is a thing. Uh, I don't know they, if it's relevant here because it's murder, so they wouldn't have a statute of limitations.
0: They did something to match all this, and I say that because it sort of sprawls from all right. Nineteen eighty seven. They're not going to know like what's going on with the DNA, um, right? But by 1990, they're going to be capturing the DNA. And I do know that the DNA evidence in the 1990 attack linked back to the 1989 murder. They had to
1: have something that had DNA on it. And at the point where they got the profile in 1990, they examined, for whatever reason, these other cases, and they linked it.
0: Right. So the I-65 killings are the first group of assaults. And then the woman in Rochester, Minnesota, was the only one that they know is linked that took place into uh, uh, along I-90. I'm um, sorry, the only
1: one? Oh, you're saying there could be others that are yeah, linked? Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. So, um Well, what I was told was that there were other sexual assaults that had been found. So the murders link him as a serial killer. I believe they've already found um, and may disclose to us now that there are at least four cases in multiple States and they did not act like they were Indiana and Kentucky when they were talking about this, but it's been a a long time since I've heard this information. So if I'm misstating it, I'll, I'll fix it later. But um, I remember them saying, because this case is not, even though he's dead and they're just announcing this in 2022, this is not the first time I've sat down and listened to, press conference about the I-65 or the Days Inn killer.
1: So they put, I mean, they, the cases are linked.
0: Right. And there were cases where it wasn't a murder linked to this already. There were at least four other victims that they talked about. They didn't give specifics on them, but now that they're saying he's dead, I think they'll go back and they'll at least identify the city's um, and, and the approximate yeah, they crime.
1: Should, they should still, uh, you especially if there's a DNA comparison that is enough to match. uh, That's enough to close the case.
0: Should be, yeah. But Um, this guy's name is Harry Edward Greenwell.
1: Do you know, did they... uh, You don't know if they dug him up. I know this is just breaking news. I just have all these questions. Well, you know, as much as I am for DNA matching, okay? And I'm sure this will be controversial and everybody can have an opinion and that's cool. Uh, Using CODIS to identify a familiar match is a slippery slope i know now i feel like uh, i have a different feeling about genetic genealogy which you can potentially achieve the same result doing right right the difference and see i i know that this is going to be something that the courts will have to hash out and you know i hope that it doesn't end up being where they have to like undo all the cases that you know, they've, which essentially all they would have to do is not match the DNA, right? (laughs) Even if they did find it through CODIS, right? Because you're looking at a situation where now you've got the tip of the suspect, right? And you've got the crime scene evidence DNA profile. And even though they use CODIS to bridge that gap, throwing all that stuff out, you would just go back to court with your suspect and their new sample, and you would run it against the crime scene. And as long as it matched, you should be good to go. So I'm just saying I I think it's a good idea, but at the same time, it's, it's going to open up, like, a whole lot of problems.
0: Yeah, it is. And it, it's, like, so there's the legal side of it, and then there's this case-specific side of it. So this guy, they had speculated in the original profile, and this came from, you know, state Police and from I think the FBI was involved in this when I was reading about it uh, they had stated that they thought he would be a traveling salesman or a
1: truck driver I think it was how they put I think it, it was truck driver yeah that's what I remember um, but what was he
0: uh, so this guy worked for the Canadian Pacific Railroad and so his first arrest which I'm sure everybody will be dumping this on the internet soon his first arrest was in January of 1963 for armed robbery. Uh, he did time in the Kentucky State Penitentiary for that and got out in 1969. His wife died in a Wisconsin house fire on April 28, 1978, and a year later he remarried. He was, he was arrested again for robbery again in the summer of 1982, and he escaped custody that year and he was recaptured, and then he escaped again and he was recaptured. Um, and then. Doo, 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 doo. So after the murders, the double murders, he was arrested for a traffic violation in Wisconsin. And that same month, he was arrested for a uh, domestic incident. And then he violated a restraining order and he got 15 months probation on April 18th, 1989. Uh, there was a. This is, I'm not talking about the I 65, I'm just talking about Greenwell at the moment. I know he's the same guy, but. Uh, He was arrested twice in 1998 in Iowa. Once was a restraining order violation, and another time was for uh, felony drug possession. Uh, In November, that uh, case was dismissed. He died in Lansing, Iowa on January 31st, 2013, of cancer. The Courier-Journal has an obituary for him stating that he was an employee of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, providing public safety for 30 years. And that he I beg to disagree with that. <laughs> he, had been, he had retired in February of two thousand and ten, and the obituary stated that Greenwell was remembered as a man with many friends who loved his straight-up attitude. Uh, so that's our. Uh, Nobody
1: little... knew that he was um, the killer. It'd be interesting to see if he's following a pattern because it seems like the murders we mentioned earlier that he's connected to through DNA they happened shortly after he had violated a restraining order and then he again violates a restraining order in 1998 so there may be a, another cluster of
0: yeah he's probably um my guess is like he's one of those guys that has pretty clear triggers that you could follow the clusters on if you could just figure out his location I still
1: I feel like he's probably a serial killer though
0: He is a serial killer I mean they've linked him beyond to
1: three, beyond I, the textbook definition like I feel like he was probably um uh targeting he was killing whoever he had violated this restraining order against vicariously.
0: Yeah. So this, whatever is going on here, ever how this is happening, we're going to see this unfold. I don't know how they'll get all the information together to make it a bigger investigation. Um, It sounds like a case where once you get that many States, uh, and you've got that type of kidnapping going on where he's, you know, taking these clerks. Um, even though he's dead now, it sounds like something the uh, FBI should throw some resources at and see if they um, come up with anything. Because there's a way to capture all that information. The problem is you have backlogs on these sexual assault cases. And sometimes that includes the cases that end in murder. That having been said, if you have no suspect and nothing to match him against, there's not really a... a, a high probability that you're testing it
1: right I think
0: in the that, 90s at least or 80s i or think
1: 90s. that resources should be used at this point to clear those backlogs and the and i don't mean by like throwing them away i mean by like actually running the test and getting like every single batch of you know evidence that there is uh getting it tested and if there's a dna profile getting it you know where it's available to search against that would literally, that would clear so many things.
0: Yeah. So that's, uh, that's our true crime news for today. And, uh, I'm sure other people have covered it to death by the time I get to it, but I'm covering it like within minutes of the, uh, press release. Yeah, I haven't Um, even
1: seen it yet.
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm just talking to you about it because I thought it would be interesting to have, But we're on a different um, series of cases that we were looking at. We've been looking at Murder for Profits, and the case that we're working at involves a woman named Monica Patterson who has taken over the finances after the death of a woman named Penny Nell. Um, Her husband, Martin Nell, is sort of left behind. And uh, Penny was 93 and Martin was 96 Uh, at the time that this is all taking place in 2014. And we sort of ended with uh, talking about this mysterious guy, Mario, who shows up to be a handyman in the home of uh, Martin Nell. And there was a, basically what we decided was when this pastor friend, Pastor Grub, who was a friend of the family, he, he mentions that they're worried a little bit about uh, Martin Jr., who goes by Mark. The the family had been worried about him doing something with money. It doesn't seem to be based in reality. It seems to just be based in, you know, being older. And Mark seems to just be concerned about the welfare of his parents throughout this. Um, I think there
1: was a misunderstanding um, because it it was a comeback to her telling him that Mark had said that his father couldn't visit his mother. Right. And considering that, I think maybe the pastor was just grappling for some uh, reasoning there. But ultimately, Mark had never said his dad couldn't visit his mom.
0: Right. But the pastor's commentary gets the attention of Monica Patterson, who is sort of the project manager um, at Comfort Health Services, who was set up to be providing what looked like end of life care, but it may have been premature for Penny um, after Martin mismanaged accidentally some of Penny's medications and she had to be briefly hospitalized Uh, There was a series of incidents that we talked about in the last episode where Martin ends up uh, briefly in an institution himself after he's misunderstood, uh, trying to explain to the hospice folks that he doesn't want to kill his wife because he doesn't feel like he can take care of her. So where we pick back up is January 5th, 2015. Martin goes with Monica to Chase Bank and he designates... Monica, the pay upon death beneficiary of his bank accounts. On March the 13th, Monica accompanies Martin to Chase Bank with uh, the statements of a woman named Maria Dale Pilar Zaniga, who's a Chase Bank teller. We're able to sort of recreate what happened there. Uh, She testifies that um, she makes a statement that she is familiar with Martin as a customer, and she distinctly recalls Martin inquiring about pay-upon-death accounts for safety deposit boxes. And Martin told her that he had met this wonderful woman and that he trusted her with his life. And he indicated this woman was Monica. Zaniga informs Martin that safety deposit boxes could not have assigned pay-upon-death beneficiaries. And Martin requested access to a safety deposit box and he was joined by Monica. So she explained that like, so the the pay upon or pay upon or pay on death is an arrangement that gives a pre-approved individual access to a specified account, provided that the individual has the appropriate beneficiary designation documentation and proof of the account owner's death. So when you show up, you have to show up with a death certificate and you have to have this document stating that you're the beneficiary. Um, what this is used for is pay on death uh, circumvents the probate process. So it means you don't have to go through the courts or before a probate judge in order to access funds. Typically the way that this is used, if it's a super simple estate, or if some of the estate funds are being utilized for last wishes. That's how this would this would typically be used. Danielle Martinez states that Monica told her during an event at a Comfort House in January 2015 that Martin had become bedbound, very ill, and that no, no hospice would accept him. And Danielle said this made no sense, given the nature of hospice facilities being the place of last resort. And in the meantime, uh, Moreno's, said that he saw Martin the day before his death, and he did not see anything that seemed like signs of imminent passing, such as modeling or breathing changes or lack of appetite or immobility. And this was important because what you had pointed out was this is very similar to what happened to Penny. Um, In fact, Monica had sort of pulled Mark aside and said that Uh, she wasn't going to make it through the night. And now she's sort of laying that groundwork again, but this time she's laying this groundwork with uh, one of the supervisors from the hospice that has been involved in all of this.
1: It's almost like too convenient.
0: It is. It it really is. um, It's not just too convenient. It's just a pattern repeating itself.
1: Yeah, because all she's done since the seed got planted is basically plan this.
0: Right. So at this point in January 2015, Martin has a home care nurse. And her name is Gloria Hernandez. And her observations line up with what I just said. Hernandez had been in to examine Martin. And she checked his temperature, his respiration, his pulse, his heart rate, and his blood pressure around 8 a.m. and reported that all of his vitals seemed stable. There was no respiratory or cardiac distress noted. Martin said he had no complaints, no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no other cardiac arrest symptoms. Gloria described Martin as alert and oriented and said he struggled with poor endurance and an unbalanced gait. About 30 minutes later, Gloria left. Now, Gloria had been treating Martin since... 2014 um so it, not like a full year but basically she has been seeing him at least since penny's death and she would show up at his residence once a week take his vitals and administer a vitamin injection i wasn't sure if that was code for something or if that's probably what,
1: like a b12 shot since she says that he had poor endurance
0: yeah that's got to be what was going on. So, between 8.30 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. on January the 28th, there's conflicting evidence concerning where Monica was. Liana Benavides, who is the administrative assistant that had been hired by Monica in September 2014 to work at Comfort, she says that she saw Monica at work by 8.30 a.m. And she claimed this was out of the ordinary because Monica normally did not get into the office until around 10 or 11. Meanwhile, there's also statements that Monica had arrived at Martin's residence shortly after Gloria departed, which would have made it around 8.30 a.m. And it was referenced that this was on the heels of a heated phone call with Martin. Meanwhile, Celestina, Martin's housekeeper, testified that Monica had arrived at Martin's residence shortly after Gloria, the nurse, had departed on the heels of a heated phone call with Martin. Uh, Cilicino described the livid exchange between Patterson and Martin, during which, pursuant to Martin's demands, Cilicino described the livid exchange between Monica and Martin, during which, pursuant to Martin's demands, Monica ordered Celestina to retrieve Martin's keys to the filing cabinet. So Celestina goes and gets the cabinet keys. He hands on to Martin and then Monica immediately tells her to leave the home. Celestina says that she went outside and she was in the driveway of Martin's residence when Mario, who was seated in Monica's car startled her. Celestina asked him what he was doing there. And he said, did Monica tell you Celestina said that she looked up, and she saw Monica waving for Mario to come inside. She also saw Mario exit the vehicle, pull gloves from his back pocket, and enter the residence, while Monica hung back for a few moments and then joined him. Celestino followed Monica back inside the home, and she says, By the time I got in there, I heard Martin, and Martin was being smothered. She said she felt as if he was unable to move. And there's a side note in all of this. On the evening before Martin's death, the housekeeper testified that she received an unprompted phone call from Mario. She stated that she never gave Mario her number and she didn't want to talk to him. And she was disturbed by what she perceived as an unwanted communication. She promptly contacted Monica who assured her that by the, over the phone that everything was okay. Uh, the housekeeper stated that she texted Mario cautioning him not to come over to Martin's house because the cops were passing by. Uh, when she's asked later on what prompted her to reference the police, the housekeeper states it's because she was afraid of him and she doesn't provide any further insight in any of the records or in the court documents for this case. She was confronted with Mario's phone records later, which indicated that she had called Mario first on the night before Martin's death. But the records also detailed four additional calls between Celestina and Mario. The details of the phone records, however, differed from Celestina's phone records, which end up introduced at trial and the investigators had them for some time. Although both records confirm that Celestino called Mario five times between seven and eight p.m., Celestina's phone records indicate that she was a recipient of an inbound call before any of that happened, but it was not on Mario's phone records. And there were no reported phone calls between Mario and Celestino on the day of Martin's death, nor were there any phone calls that were recorded or reported between uh, Mario and Monica. According to the housekeeper, Monica said, I had to put him to sleep because he was accusing you of stealing. Monica ordered the housekeeper to clean the doorknobs and to wait 30 to 45 minutes before calling the police. She also forbade the housekeeper from mentioning her presence at the residence. The housekeeper said she was told by Mario that he would be watching her and she overheard him call someone to come and pick him up. Once Monica and Mario left the residence, the housekeeper entered the home and found that Martin was face forward in a sitting position at the kitchen table. She placed a call to 911 followed by a call to Monica as she had been instructed to do so. When asked why she waited to report what she had witnessed to law enforcement, the housekeeper said it was because she knew that Monica was politically involved and she did not want this to fall into the wrong hands. For a reference here, uh, Monica is the daughter of a former county commissioner and she is the sister of a, a local county court judge. At 9.42 a.m., the McAllen Fire Department arrived at Martin's house. Eric Espinoza, he was a driver with the department, testified that a housekeeper had ushered him to where Martin was lying on the floor next to the dining table. Mid recitation efforts, the housekeeper handed Espinoza a phone. Espinoza stated that an individual on the phone told him that there was a DNR order in place. So that's a do not resuscitate order uh, for this patient and for us not to touch him. And per department policy, uh, Espinoza told the woman that any DNR needed to be present before the department would cease recitation uh, efforts. Medicare EMS personnel arrived at 9.49 a.m. and they moved Martin to an ambulance he was intubated and intravenous fluids were started. According to DeNora Mendoza, who was the Medcare paramedic who arrived on scene, she stated that although Martin had no pulse, he was warm. And soon after, uh, Mendoza heard knocking on the ambulance's side door, and a woman later identified as Monica handed paramedics the DNR paperwork. Martin's cause of death was listed as a cardiac arrest. On the day of Martin's funeral... Mark asked Monica for permission to go inside his father's home and Monica declined. There was a verbal altercation that escalated and stopped only when Monica abruptly walked away. Monica returned with a single piece of paper entitled the last will and testament. It had been redacted says Mark only had my dad's name at the top and and Monica Patterson's name at the bottom as the executrix. Mark requested the unredacted version, but Monica told him that he would have to get it from the attorney and she refused to provide the name of the attorney. Pastor Grubb, who was in attendance at Martin's funeral, said he took this opportunity to speak to Mark privately. Pastor Grubb stated he told Mark that he felt that Monica had manipulated Martin to take his money from him. And he disclosed that Monica had told Martin that Mark was filing motions for incompetency of him and to take control of him and his estate. So we sort of briefly touched on that in the last episode Um, and that's something that is being done specifically to to further separate father and son right
1: right uh, because Mark had never done anything like that
0: right he didn't have much of an interest in what was going on there
1: well but specifically he wasn't doing anything against them and in fact Monica was the one that was actually doing the things that she was then telling Martin her son
0: was doing one of the things they kept them in place, which was pretty smart. one of the the pieces of the original will was that Pastor Grubb was supposed to receive hundred thousand dollars from Martin's estate and he did later on this comes up as a reason for Pastor Grubb to be motivated to do something financially against Martin but Martin, Uh, had followed Pastor Grubb's advice to some degree to see an attorney. And that sort of uh, protection of Martin's interest is what eliminates Pastor Grubb as having had anything to do with whatever has just happened here.
1: But I bet he wishes he could take back when he told Monica that Mark was... um possibly looking to gain financial financially by keeping his mom away. I mean, his dad away from his mom.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, he even states, there's a quote in there that it says, that's why I wanted him to see a lawyer protect his interests because I told him it's way above my pay grade to help you on financial matters. And I bet you after the fact, he felt like it was above, his pay grade. You have mentioned anything about the finances to anyone?
1: You know, um, I think that that could be a, a teachable merriment for everyone.
0: Yeah, like that's that. It, I, you know, I think sometimes people innocently like. Well, we're getting to the point now that I think people know that there's just evil people in the world. But it didn't <laughs> used to be that way, and we saw that with Harold Henry. He just, sort of just fell in with a
1: I think it's just more outspoken now. I, I think it's always been like the same amount of evil.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I wasn't making a point that there was more evil. I was trying to make a point that there was more awareness of that. Okay. Evil.
1: Yeah. Like I agree. less
0: people being gullible to these situations.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, again, I, I said before that Pastor Grubb, um, he had been faced with, you know, sort of the confrontation with Monica that Mark didn't want Martin to see his wife and Mark's mother. And I feel like he grappled in his mind as to why, and the only thing he could come up with was it has to be financially motivated, right? The problem was Mark had never said that Martin couldn't come in and see Penny. Uh, Monica was just baiting this situation. And so, but so even, so in that situation, I said, you know, perhaps this is a teachable moment. I do feel like the intention there was to somehow um, figure out why on earth Mark would not want his dad to see his mom. And it's just a situation that didn't need to be addressed.
0: Well, I'll, okay. So that having been said, I'll make it a second teachable moment. Um, I have been involved in a couple of instances where people get elder abuse investigations rolling. And there is one rolling in this case. You guys got to remember, Adult Protective Services has not only been contacted with a tip, they've had two reports on top of the tip um, where they've sent people out to interview Martin and now Martin is dead. So here's the teachable moment. Get involved if you believe something like this is going on. Let the police tell you to butt out. Like, get involved to the point that, like, you ask questions.
1: Um, I always felt like in these situations, the best thing that should occur is everybody have the conversation at the same time in front of everybody else. Because, see, in this situation, at that point in time, uh, Mark could have said, well, I never said that,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, this is, like, like, this is genuinely a time for... I don't even know how you do it. It's sort of a family meeting. And like, unfortunately by the time, you know, money does crazy people. Money does crazy things to people at the end of other people's lives. Like I don't, I mean, I, I, um, I have relatives that I love. My wife has relatives that I love that I am sort of a little shocked by their behavior. Sometimes when it comes to, uh, the things that happen with estates and wills and probate, it's very, very, very confusing to To watch people's personalities sort of melt, uh, yeah, and and I think if you had everyone together, it's almost like a family meeting is, is sort of blended with an intervention where like just concerns are aired, generally speaking, and there's no accusations,
1: right? There doesn't need to be this third party intermediary here, though, like yeah, with the but director.
0: That's the biggest that's the biggest thing like that's
1: where there's a problem
0: like if you see someone even if they're not your relatives if they're just you know somebody else's relatives you should point behavior like this out because it's shit behavior like there's no reason for people to get into this mode where they're like oh i'm gonna uh be doing this or i'm gonna be doing that to help you with your money you don't you nine times out of ten you do not need that help and if you happen to be involved in CPS or APS or any of those type family care services, and you happen to be listening to this podcast, which I can't, not, I, maybe we do. I can't imagine we have a lot of audience members who do that, but like these cases should be escalated more quickly because our, the, the rabbit hole that we've been down is cases like this are more prominent than you realize.
1: Um, I would say that, uh, they're a lot more prominent, and in this particular case, as we sort of followed the narrative through, it they were basically just taking notes about what was happen, happening. There was very little action taken. It happened to be that, like, you know, the social worker got involved, and she got, like, two supervisors involved, and they had accounts of what had occurred, right? But they didn't take any action.
0: No, they're logging it and filing reports, which is, I mean... Unfortunately, it's, it's
1: bureaucratic nonsense.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it hmm. makes
1: for a, a complete narrative after he's been murdered.
0: Yes. And this is where uh, this is where we pick up in this episode. Here is uh, how the investigation was. Now, if you remember, um, the housekeeper gave statements that there was a a murder. She basically witnessed the murder. Right. And so she goes, in la-
1: she goes in later to the Texas Rangers.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is how this all kicks off. On February 24, 2015, this is four months after the Adult Protective Services were originally contacted by the hospice and the local sheriff's department regarding the allegations of elder exploitation. Um, And this is one of the biggest things for me that it's the reason I threw in a second teachable moment. This whole thing unfolds like lightning, like someone knew it was all going to happen. So Monica manages to stay under everybody's timeline. And this is sort of of wild to, to hear, but here we go. So Juana Isabel Caro, she's a supervisor with the Adult Protective Services Division. She follows up on this case. She would later state that she contacted Monica, and Monica stated that she had been cleared by her board, even though Carl doesn't ask about that, wasn't even asking about anything related to it. Monica maintains that she had nothing to do with Martin's finances, and she denied knowing who held any of the financial power of attorney. And Carl stated that she learned that Monica was Martin's agent to act on his behalf in matters pertaining to his finances, his property, his banking, his estate, his trust, and any other beneficiary transactions. So she is in charge of his whole life, his whole estate, literally everything.
1: Right. But she says that she had nothing to do with any of it when she's asked by the, um, Investigator.
0: Right. And on the same day that Adult Protective Services starts to follow up on this and starts trying to put a case together, Celestina contacts the Texas Rangers. She speaks to Ranger Robert Calloway, and the two speak in excess of 10 hours that day. Calloway describes Celestina as visibly distraught and very emotional. So as part of his investigation, Calloway testifies that he also spoke with other people, including Martin's neighbors Uh, The folks from APS, staff at the Comfort House, and various board members uh, that are uh, supervising Comfort House, Martin's son, Mark, and he speaks to Monica. Calloway obtains all the banking and phone records in in an attempt to confirm or to prove that the information he's getting from different witnesses, including Monica, what part of this information is true. So one of the first things he does is he begins a review of Monica's phone records. A review of her phone records place Mario, Monica and Celestina, their cell phones in the vicinity of Martin's residence, starting around eight o'clock in the morning, which is one hour before uh, he was led to believe that Monica was there. Initially, Monica's phone records also provided additional suspect information On the morning of Martin's death, Monica placed a call to Heriberto Suarez, a handyman that she had contracted on behalf of Comfort House and with whom she had been having an affair. Because you always got to have an affair. Like, if you're not having an affair, it's just not a very good murder story. The 6.21 a.m. phone call spanned over 45 minutes. When confronted with the phone logs and the text messages later, Heriberto Suarez denied having any recollection of a phone call the morning of Martin's murder, although he did recall Monica later telling him that Martin had passed away from natural causes. Suarez was also unable to remember whether Monica had texted him that today was a perfect day on October 22nd. That's the same day that Martin withdrew $150,000. And a situation involving lots of documents had gone better than she thought on December the 8th. So she texts him a situation involving lots of documents had gone better than she thought on December the 8th. That's the day that Martin had made Monica the executor of his will. He did, however, recall that prior to Martin's death, Monica told him that Martin was going to leave his estate to her. He was going to change it to all go to her. Um, he, he, he confirms in his statements that it was peculiar uh, of Martin's interest in uh, Monica's interest in Martin. But he testified that though a lot of people had died at comfort, Monica had never texted him regarding the death of any other former Comfort House patient or family member apart from Martin and Penny.
1: I just want to point out Martin was never a patient there.
0: No, he was a family member, though.
1: Right, but by that point, Penny was gone.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, by this point, it's bonkers. Pursuant to his investigation, uh, Ranger Calloway asked Celestina to make a consensually recorded phone call between her and Monica. This is on June 28th. The phone call revealed no information, said Calloway. But... Monica did not admit to anything, nor did she deny causing any harm to Martin on January the 28th, but Celestina placed a second call to Monica, and the two agreed to meet at a local Whataburger. Uh, Recordings of the phone calls in the Whataburger meeting, they end up being a part of the, the evidence later in this case. There's no confession and no denial in any of it. However, Monica did place herself and Mario at the house prior to the time that she had initially told Calloway. So the Whataburger meeting takes place on July the 5th. Monica claims that she was there with Mario to fix the shower, which is why she had in, uh, instructed Celestina to wait outside. Why do you have to go out? Why does the housekeeper have to go outside so you can fix the shower? Can you explain that to me?
1: Uh, because you're not fixing the shower. I mean, in some ways, she I guess maybe she thought uh, she wanted to see what, uh, she wasn't exactly sure what Celestina's backbone was. And it could have been possible that she might have said, like, no, don't do that. Right. Right. And so that's why she was put outside. Um, Now, granted, she didn't have to witness the murder and she was afraid. Right. Yeah. So
0: this is one of the parts that we get into like a, a weird space here. The review of the recordings, Monica basically says she can't talk over the phone. And she reiterates offers to drive to Celestina to see her. And Celestina wants nothing to do with Monica.
1: Right. She's trying to find out where she's at.
0: Yeah, yeah. She was going to kill her. Yeah, um, no question. And then even though Calloway makes a statement that the Whataburger recording uh, it indicates Monica maintained she didn't harm Martin. Uh, even though he said that like she doesn't deny it, she does deny it in, in the recording to some degree. She just states that he died of a heart attack. And later on, Monica confides in one of her employees regarding this whole situation that she believes Celestino was wearing a wire, that she believes something was off with Celestino, and that employee says that maybe Celestino was wearing a wire, according to how Monica was like depicting all of this. So at that point... Monica asked the employee to drive her to a payphone so that she could contact Mario. Monica claims that she couldn't call Mario because they're going to trace her. Um, And at at this point in this phone call, she does reach out to Mario and she says, they're going to be looking for you. Make sure you hide. Uh, When the employee asked Monica about this for an explanation, she stated that it was because of Mario's immigration status. And she doesn't go any further. There's another comfort employee uh, who had stated that uh, Monica's whereabouts uh, on the morning of the murder were at the office earlier than usual. She spoke of an unprompted disclosure by Monica following Martin's death. Monica uh, approached this person requesting spiritual guidance concerning forgiveness and God. And this person who remains close to Monica maintained that she didn't think what, uh, Monica was asking about had anything to do with Martin's death.
1: Do you think that's, I feel like everybody was afraid of this woman.
0: I think, I think maybe not everybody. I understand why you would think that based on the way I'm putting it all together, but I feel
1: like her saying that she didn't perceive it as, um, Monica's inquiry about God and forgiveness as unusual is because like, just in case, She's found not guilty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could see, like, like don't let her come after me. I would see, I didn't, I thought it was sort of split into two camps. I think there's like one side that think that Monica is like nuts and might come after them. But I think part of these people are just looking at all of this and thinking, this is insane. Because that's what, like, that was, I think that's what I said to you, like, right after I read the whole thing. As I was reading this case and, like, sort of going through it all, not, like, the media part. Like, everything I'm pulling from was introduced to the court. This is not, like, stories. I'm pulling from, like, statements of facts and and court documents related to the appeal and related to the denial of the appeal. Because if, if you spin it in the media at all, it loses some of its insanity. But I, it really I think does. These, I think these people, cause you think like that's sensational, but these people looked at it, like just looked at the facts of what was being asked of them and they went, that's insane.
1: Right. And I feel like, um, the normal reaction to sort of how the narrative begins to play out when, uh, Celestine goes to the Rangers, like the normal reaction would be that, well, certainly this not-for-profit hospice house that has a board of directors did not hire a murderer to direct it. Right. Right. That, and so working in the office administratively, they're going, yeah, she didn't do any of that. There's no way. There are so many safeguards in place that wouldn't allow this to happen.
0: Yeah. And so the <laughs> way that I'm typically tearing stuff apart, that's exactly what I would want to say. Like, I would want to look at it and be like, there is no way this is happening. But the truth is, this is like one of those perfect storm moments where
1: It somebody, took quite a bit of manipulation, though.
0: A lot of manipulation.
1: Just pers- uh, like from my perspective, my personal opinion is that if Mark was a female, I don't think this would have happened.
0: Okay. I mean, explain yourself. You can't just drop that mic and he walk was- away. <laughs>
1: Well, it's nothing negative. It's just like Mark was uh, really sort of uh, respectful of his his father's position, and he was sad that his mother died, and he didn't want to have like. I mean, he knew his parents were in their nineties, right? Um, he, it's not like they're going to live forever. He didn't want to have this conflict, but because Monica was baiting the conflict, like. He didn't know why his dad was so pissed off, right? Um, Oh, okay. And so, what I'm saying is, while a guy's now, this isn't this is totally gender bias, of course, but I'm just saying for the most part, men are more likely to kind of step back and let things play out, right? While if he was a female, it would have been unlikely that a girl would have just... Like, a daughter would have just, like, let it play out, right? She would have been, like, trying... She would have been up in her dad's face going, why are you saying this stuff to me? Because I haven't done any of this,
0: right? Well, okay, so I'm I'm going to let that ride because your point is valid. I don't necessarily think it's... I think it's more of a personality trait than it is a gender trait. That's just well, me personally. I, I have the experience that all of the women in my life would do exactly what you said.
1: They're going to be up on the situation going, wait, what? Like, this is it. But Mark didn't do any of that. And it wasn't because he didn't care. Right. He didn't want to
0: get into a fight.
1: He didn't want to fight with his dad, but like his dad was fighting with him anyway. So he really didn't feel like he could assert himself. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he had just lost his mom and I just, I feel like, um, and you know, I've, I, I think I read or saw an interview with him and he was talking about how, like, there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't cry a little bit about this. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I can empathize with that because, uh, he had no idea. There was no way he could have known this was happening because I'm sure that they were paying a fortune for his mom to go to this facility, and there's no way a not-for-profit hospice house with a board of directors would hire a murderer as their director, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, that may be like a controversial remark. I'm just saying that, uh, it, you know, sometimes you should speak up.
0: Yeah, so this Ranger Calloway is trying to find somebody that's going to speak up in the middle of all this. And what we just described, like, up up to this point, we're in, like, July of 2015. And while we panicked, Monica has panicked and she's called Mario, uh, nothing happens. And it doesn't happen for a while. It just sort of sits there while the ranger goes hunting.
1: Right, because so at this point, his death was considered to be a heart attack, a cardiac arrest. And because of his age and all the other circumstances, he died naturally, uh, according to how it has played out so far, until this eyewitness, Celestine, comes in and says, wait, no, it wasn't natural. He was murdered.
0: Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabbratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabbratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 five five nine three you can also reach us at gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com and you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com we'll see you next time Yes.